the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. As a constitutional law attorney, former senior legal advisor and personal counsel to President Donald J. Trump, Jenna Ellis believes in the rule of law and the importance of integrity in our elections. And she's ready to tackle the big cultural and legal issues facing America. This is The Jenna Ellis Show. Here is your host, Jenna Ellis. Happy Wednesday, friends, and welcome to another episode of The Jenna Ellis Show. Today, I'm going to be talking with good friend from Judicial Watch. Of course, that's Tom Fitton's group, uh, Russ Noble. He's been an attorney with the group since 2019 and testified before Congress last week on the Voting Rights Act and a number of other things related to election integrity. So we're going to get to that conversation. But first, obviously, the Biden administration has caused a financial crisis. They have no clue how to fix it. Oil prices have skyrocketed. And when oil prices go up, not only do your expenses go up, but the cost of transportation and shipping spike leading the prices of goods to rise. And we're already seeing record inflation. That's the last thing that we need. Our economy is in trouble and you need to take steps to protect yourself. If all your money is tied up in stocks, bonds, and traditional markets, you may be vulnerable. So Legacy Precious Metals is the company that I trust for investing in gold because gold is one of the best ways to protect your retirement. You can't ever start your financial health and uh, make sure that you are protecting that too early. So Legacy Precious Metals can help you roll your retirement account into a gold-backed IRA where you still own the physical gold. They can also ship gold and precious metals safely and securely directly to your home. Call Legacy today at 866-528-1903 or visit them online at LegacyPMInvestments.com where you can download their free investor's guide. If you want to talk to someone about your personal financial situation, then call and talk to one of their personalized consultants at 866-528-1903 or you can visit them online at LegacyPMInvestments.com. Well, now turning to election integrity and the importance of all of these issues. Yesterday, of course, was the conversation with Ken Blackwell. If you missed that, definitely go and subscribe to The Jenna Ellis Show on all the podcast platforms or on YouTube and Rumble and make sure that you never miss an episode. But joining me now is Russell Noble, who joined Judicial Watch's legal team as a senior attorney in May 2019. Uh, Noble has appeared before congressional committees and federal courts across the country, including last week when he testified regarding the Voting Rights Act. Um, I think, of course, that was a misnomer and misnamed by the Democrats. Uh, But joining me now is uh, Russ from Judicial Watch to talk about that testimony. So Russ, thanks so much for joining. Yeah, Jenna, thanks. It's uh, nice to see you. Thank you for having me. It's nice to join you today. I'm excited to follow Ken. Ken's doing great work. And so it's nice to be in the same conversation with him. Yeah. And, you know, we have so many great uh, allies from so many great conservative groups that want to protect election integrity. And one of the key points that you made to the committee um, is how this term of, you know, voter suppression and uh, some of these things that the Voting Rights Act, um, apparently, according to them, seeks to remedy are just not 
uh, in fact or truth or the substantive record. And I'm really grateful to be part of a community of uh, great organizations like Judicial Watch, like AFPI. Of course, I'm the chairperson of the Election Integrity Alliance with the American Greatness Fund. So many great partners across the country who see the dangers of the Democrats not only manipulating the narrative, but now also trying to manipulate the law. So as you're looking at the Voting Rights Act, um, kind of break that down and what you saw as uh, the biggest flaws and dangers of federalizing the election system, because we know that even though, thankfully, that failed, uh, the Democrats aren't going to stop. And Joe Biden even said that. Yeah, I mean, you know, they had three or four different bills, but they all largely had, you know, five or six of the major same components. Then some had some campaign finance issues. I mean, the big thing is that, you know, they were looking for federalizing and taking control of elections and draconian regulations that were well beyond anything that were looked at in 1965. And so, you know, the whole argument for it is that this, you know, what I touched on in my, my testimony, at least my verbal testimony, is that they paint this dystopian view that people aren't allowed to vote and that there's this massive problem. And, and you know, there are always problems at poll sites. You can get a camera out and find everything. And so you, know, you can take one thing and amplify it enough and everyone will believe it. But this idea that they're gonna take, um, take control of the elections, all state elections or state elections, and just take, run them out of DC, it's just, it's impossible. I mean, I worked at the DOJ for about nine years or seven years, and then in the voting section for about five or six years, and they're just not gonna be capable of doing that, even if we wanted them to do that, which we don't, but they're just not capable of doing that. I mean, um, the legislation, you know, it wanted to take over all redistricting nationwide, I mean, if they didn't, if they didn't have a justification to take over redistricting in, in Idaho in 1965. I don't know why they have it and have a justification in 2022. And you know what? A lot of this, this, these voting wars, you know, they started with Bush v. Gore, but then they really amplified in 2008 when the Supreme Court said that uh, voter ID was legal, right? They, the, the Supreme Court upheld Indiana's voter ID, and so there was this massive effort. Uh, uh, they upheld the constitutionality of it, but the, but there's been this massive effort to sort of take a statutory approach to it using the Voting Rights Act to try to carve it up. And then after the Shelby County case in 2013, where they struck down Section 5, there's just been this free-for-all of, 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 of pushing this voter suppression narrative. Uh, um, I mean, one point I tried to make in my testimony the other day was that, you know, in 08, after voter ID was upheld, they said that, you know, minorities weren't going to be allowed to vote and all this sort of chicken little stuff, this massive voter suppression. And what we've seen in the last 13 years is largely that uh, minority participation and turnout has gone up. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, if you really want to extrapolate anything from that, you can make the argument. And I'm not saying this is the case because I'm not a you know data scientist, but you can make the argument that there's a strong correlation between voter ID and minority turnout. And so, it, you know, these things that they're complaining are going to happen never come to fruition, and yet they're still making these complaints in order to have a federal takeover of elections. Mm -hmm. um, one other thing they had in this legislation that really, it always sort of got me revved up, was that um, it gave the Attorney General a 14th Amendment standing. And it doesn't mean a lot of stuff to non-lawyers, but heretofore, the AG has never been able to get into Second Amendment cases, abortion cases, any of the substantive due process cases. The Attorney General in the United States 
can't just get in the middle of a suit just because they don't like something. They have to have standing just like everybody else. And they gave the attorney general 14th Amendment standing. So who's ever controlling the Justice Department could sway really significant civil rights issues well beyond voting. And that, you know, it's just it, it, to me, it's just mind boggling because it would have obviously been highly corrosive. Uh, DOJ policy would have been even worse than it is now. But um, so anyway, it's it's fortunate that it failed. Hopefully this is the end of it. I actually testified um, four times since May about it. And the one last week was sort of, con you know, peculiar because it had already failed in the Senate. So I got the sense that it was really more of a venting session for the advocacy groups. And we were just there to sort of go along for the ride. But uh, um, hopefully this will be the end of it for a while. And then we'll just see how the 2022 elections go and then go from there. Yeah, and hopefully uh, with that testimony on the record, uh, we at least as conservatives are making the case and having it on the congressional record why uh, we object to some of these just ridiculous and, and far overbroad insertions. And I think a lot of people uh, don't understand some of the points that you just made of why this legislation was so overbroad and um, and touching on things that really don't have any impact or relevance specifically to elections, even though what it did try to change in elections was highly problematic, highly unconstitutional, but also uh, how overbroad this was. And now there is um, there have been reports that they're trying to insert some things into some legislation um, around NASA, and um, they're trying to insert some of these um, election integrity issues in all kinds of things, almost like they do with you know omnibus bills where they're trying to just uh, put this anywhere that they possibly can. And so it seems like Democrats are trying to just include uh, what they think is best for elections in any legislation, hoping that somewhere it passes uh, without notice. So are there anything other than, um, you know, potentially the NASA bill or other things that you anticipate where they're going to try to sneak in some of this thing into other legislation? I mean, I don't think that they're done yet. I mean, they obviously expressed the desire to keep going. I don't know anything off the top of my head about sort of their next sort of, you know, strategy to try to get it through the Senate. Um, you know, they, they, they sort of failed pretty monumentally in the last couple of weeks. And so I think they may try to move on to something maybe where they've got more success. Uh, you know, I was really heartened by the fact that maybe some of the softer Republicans uh, sort of held firm on it. You know, there's always this yes. thing where, you know, look, I'm an election lawyer. I'm a conservative election lawyer. I want everyone to vote. You know, it, it, mm -hmm. the chips will fall where they lie. And so, you know, there is, you know, some sentiment there where like, oh, of course, we're, we're, we support people voting. But that's not what this is. This is literally they're trying to decentralize and centralize the control of elections in, in, in D.C. Now, um, you know, they, there are some concerns about sort of the, the Electoral Count Act, the things that happened post-election inside the Congress. Uh, I've heard, you know, there's a Wall Street Journal article the other day that some people were talking about that. I haven't seen anything. I haven't been involved in that. Um, obviously, uh, anytime someone starts tinkering with it, I, I just imagine they're going to make it much broader than they are. But uh, I'll sit, you know, I'll sit quietly by and see what the uh, um, what the Senate comes up with, and then and then probably rail against it. But I'll wait to see what it is at that point. Right. And actually see what the text is and what's being uh, put forward. And you mentioned um, Section 5 in the Shelby case. Uh, why is that important? Um, and how did that change kind of the dynamic of uh, how we're moving forward? So if you, all right, so the Voting Rights Act passed in 1965 and it had two big, two big statutes. Section 2, which basically said can't discriminate. 
And then section five that basically said in certain particular states, all election laws are invalid until they're either approved by a federal court in DC or the DOJ. And so basically it solved the whack-a-mole problem that, uh, that sort of came up in the Jim Crow era, right? Because every time they came up with something new, the Southern Jim Crow seg segregationists would just come up with something that to go around it. And so it's think of it like as, a, as an injunction stopping all changes until they're approved. And that was justified probably in 1965 and for some period of time afterwards, because it was just impossible to deal with it all. But finally, um, it was supposed to be a temporary statute. I think it was like 10 years maybe, but they've renewed it for almost 60 years. Um, and so what ended up happening was in 2013, uh, the Supreme Court came and said, no, this temporary measure uh, is no longer justified based on the evidence that Congress is relying on. And so it struck down the coverage formula because you know, it covered, you know, the southern states for the most part. And um, what the Supreme Court pointed out and what I pointed out in my testimony the other day is that actually, you know, when you talk about ballot access, you got to look at voter registration data and turnout. And, you know, in a lot of the Section 5 states that were covered by Section 5, minority turnout and registration is actually higher than whites. Not in all of them, but there's no longer disparity in there, right? I mean, in 1965, when... Um, the Voting Rights Act was passed, uh, my home state of Mississippi had 6.4% uh, black voter registration with a 40% you know, African-American population. I mean, that's just indefensible. And so, um, you know, there was a problem and democracy was failing, right? But that's not the case anymore. Everyone can vote. Everyone has numerous outlets to register to vote and they're actually turning out. And so when you say that there's not this ballot access and there's not this voters, there's all this voter suppression and then turnout and registration is still going up. Uh, there's a disconnect between the data and the narrative. And, mm -hmm. you know, there's just big money, unfortunately. There's just big money in claiming voter suppression and it's. And they're twisting that term, you know, voter suppression to the Democrats is now basically any form of verification of a legal ballot. And for them to go back to this Jim Crow era and to think that somehow we're still in the 1960s related to some of these issues just doesn't comport with fact. And to actually have at verification that is across the board. It's not discriminatory and it's not somehow disparately treating uh, anyone in terms of ballot access. I mean, they can't, and I haven't, they can't provide, and I haven't seen any data whatsoever in our current era to in any way suggest or be a defense for those types of claims that voter ID, for example, is barring anyone or is some kind of substantial burden to anyone who is otherwise legally eligible to vote having ballot access. And so these types of terms, Russ, are being manipulated by the leftist narrative because, of course, anyone and any conservative, as you said, we want people to vote. We want a high voter turnout and then uh, and we want free and fair elections. And there have been candidates for all kinds of offices, including uh, the president, that have been against how I voted. And, you know, I didn't vote for Obama, but he was elected. I didn't vote for, um, you know, or support a lot of Democrats um, in elections where I've been eligible that have gotten into office. That's just how it goes in a constitutional republic where we're allowed to vote. But what isn't true 
is that conservatives are trying to suppress the vote by having verification methods. And so um, in your testimony, was there any clash from anyone in particular um, or even support with Republicans in Congress that actually get this and were trying uh, to combat the leftist narrative? Uh, you know, the, the way it works is, I, I, well, well, first off, you know, on the Jim Crow point, is 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 frustrating and is is you know monumentally uh is mystifying as i think i said it was that they chose that narrative is it's all it was almost heartening when they started saying jim crow 2.0 because at that point you know it's failing right because everyone knows what jim crow was and it's you know i it's too you know it's just too graphic to even go into here it was a horrible period in our time and you know it's it, it, it never needs to be repeated but it's not going on right now. And so, you know, that's the point I tried to make that, you know, if you call what's going on Jim Crow 2.0 right now, it's really just proof that you don't know uh, what Jim Crow 1.0 was and you don't know what uh, 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 election administration, right? So, I mean, there's been time, place and manner regulations for everything. I mean, um, but in terms of, you know, banter back and forth on uh, in the hearing, I mean, you know, I think the Democrats were happy to ignore us and, and focus on their witnesses. They don't. Want to, they probably didn't want to give us much time to respond about sort of the um, disconnect with reality uh, that we were hearing. Narrative. Yeah. And, uh, so we sort of, you know, they sort of ignored us. I mean, Congressman Johnson from Louisiana, Congressman Roy, both participated pretty vigorously the other day. It's actually sure they you know, did. I love Mike Johnson. Just so listeners know, you have to follow him on Twitter. He's one of the most outstanding uh, lawyers. He used to uh, be part of the Beckett Fund and ADF, and you know, has done a lot of litigation and constitutional issues. And uh, you know, is just one of the most outstanding members of Congress. And you know, someone that I consider a personal friend. Uh, he and his wife Kelly are great Christians. And anyway. I'm glad that you mentioned that he's pushing back in the hearing because he's fantastic for people who don't follow Mike Johnson. Yeah, uh, but, <laughs> Congressman Johnson and Roy, I mean, they were the only two Republicans there that day and they were excellent. I mean, you know, they, they're they sharp on it. Congressman Roy, I think, worked on the 2006 Voting Rights Act legislation. And then, you know, uh, Congressman Johnson were both really, really good to have on our side and have at the hearing. Great. And, you know, and now uh, it seems like the next step that the leftists are going uh, in the aftermath of this just total failure, uh, really, is that they're now going to, to use the 2020 election and the irregularities there and all of the uh, the ways that, of course, there were legal challenges uh, to the results of that election and using that as a pretext to now say, well, you know, that was totally fictitious and that was just the Republicans now trying to pave the way to having states implement a lot of different reforms that are unjustified. And so, Russ, as we're looking at some of the state legislation and some of the good things that have passed um, in Georgia, for example, and purging voter rolls and contemplating, okay, do we actually have security in our elections? What on earth is wrong with saying, let's make sure that we have the most secure elections that don't have any sort of um, suppression mechanisms at all, but we're just making sure that we have, for example, um, the right voter rolls that we that we purge that we don't have, um, you know, any any dead people voting, for example, that we don't have people who are otherwise not eligible uh, putting forward a vote. What's wrong with that? And what's wrong with any of these bills that are being put forward in the state legislature to make sure uh, to ensure the safety and security of the vote? Yeah, it's really peculiar. I mean, I mean, 
you know, with the um, with the talking points that came out of the the legislative fight the last two weeks, it was sort of funny because you could really see the birth of a new narrative, right? This whole like, who gets to count your votes? It's who's going to be able to count your vote and all that. And of course, this legislation has nothing to do with who counts your vote. It just makes sure that there's, you know, that there's sort of an orderly administration of elections, which is something that, you know, we used to do voice votes in the 19th century. And then we decided that voice votes weren't good. So we had to have, you had to, you had to bring your own piece of paper to write down. And then they decided that wasn't good. Then the parties came up with this idea of a ticket and they gave you a ticket and you put it in the box. And so there's been all these innovations that sort of helped ensure the integrity of an election. And so um, this idea that, um, you know, you know, stopping people, harassing people in line for voting. Uh, I mean, it's, I mean, the people that are most affected by harassment in line at voting are the minority, the poor minority communities, right? This idea that uh, um, they will literally go to your project or your housing unit and escort you to the poll site. And when they do that, um, if you don't go along with it, there's an admission that maybe you don't support the their candidate and it could be a problem there. I mean, I've seen it uh, when I was at DOJ at different places. And um, and so some of this stuff, in fact, does protect minority voters from harassment. I mean, you know, this idea of, of, of at-home voting, I mean, it sounds great, but I mean, I don't know why you want to bring the voting experience to your house personally. I mean, I'd be happy to just leave the voting, you know, the election site to begin with. But this thing where, you know, we're at home mail balloting where, you know, somebody will have an iPod and or iPad, excuse me, and and go to your house and check and make sure you voted and, and, and do all that stuff and have continual people harassing you. It, it, it you know, it just it doesn't really strike, sound appealing to me. And so. And it's not freedom and liberty either, because as much as we obviously encourage people to exercise their right to vote, they also do have a right to not participate and abstain. I mean, we even see Congress members doing that all the time. There's a lot of people and, you know, I'm not passing judgment on it, but there are a lot of people that don't want to register because they don't want to do jury duty. You know, and that's, I mean, we've had, I had people tell me that I don't register because I don't want to do jury duty. And I mean, if, you know, I can understand, it. you know, I mean, I like to vote, so I'll do it. But uh, uh, there's a lot of things that I probably do that people don't, wouldn't make sense of either. So, um, you know, I mean, you have places like, I mean, without going into too many specifics about states, but like Wisconsin, I mean, their voter registration list is a mess. It's an absolute mess, but they're not subject to the NVRA, the National Motor Voter Bill, right? So, um, you know, where we can sue other states over list maintenance practices, Wisconsin's got a carve out because they have same day registration, which honestly creates a twofold problem. One, uh, they're not registered, you know, they have this sort of high volume of registration on election day, which I would think probably has a higher level of inaccuracy, just given the rush of voting and everything at the poll site. And then two, they're not regularly maintained compared to other states, which is required to do so by federal law. So. Um, it's this weird virtue signaling almost that like, it's like this, this idea that the, the least secure elections is possible or more legitimate. And it's the exact opposite the way most people would think, right? I mean, you would want the more security or the more balance between access and security, the more legitimate the elections are. But now they just want to have as little security as possible. And, and they just, you, you're supposed to trust the outcomes and it's just, it's just not the way people work. Yeah, and, and it flies in the face of reason and logic and is purely partisan politics. And what did you make of President Biden uh, saying in the aftermath of the Voting Rights Act failing, you know, well, I mean, he basically condemned and said that he thinks that 
2022 election will now be illegitimate on face because we didn't federalize U.S. elections. I mean, that's just complete and, and totally moronic. It, 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 it was sort of shocking to see. I mean, I've seen politicians challenge the legitimacy of election. I've been, I've been in this space for about 16 years now. Yeah, President so Trump I, was not the first. No, no, <laughs> no, I mean, it happened with... But what's funny is, it, it, you know, I talk about this internally, like human nature is such that people will always strive for a competitive advantage. We do it. People cheat in sumo wrestling. They cheat in cheerleading. The, the original Greek Olympics had cheating. All sorts of, but for some reason, when people go into the ballot box, there's suddenly this level of, of altruism and, and virtue that no one ever cheats. And they, people cheat in elections. They just do. It's, it's making the decisions as who gets to control the proceeds from the federal government. And so it is. And so this idea that you're going to sort of preemptively uh, challenge the legitimacy before the qualifying deadline is it's sort of a, it's a very worrisome turn. I mean, I, I've never seen that happen so early. I mean, Every election, I mean, we knew it going into 2020, like every election, there's this bankroll of money or, 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 you know, campaigns or whatever, and they always go to sue to change the, the rules. And, um, you know, 2020, it happened, 2018, you know, 2018, 2016, it always happens. And um, it was worse last year, but, um, you know, it, it, to see them challenge the legitimacy of a congressional election, 10 months in advance is something I've never seen before in, in the time period. Yeah, and it, it's amazing how much, even though these issues have always been present, uh, you know, and you said you've observed this over the last 16 years, and certainly that didn't just cover the 2020 election, but now that this has become such a, a highly politicized issue because it's in the common everyday conversation among politically astute Americans and anyone who just, you know, understands what's going on in our country, it seems like it's so overly uh, politicized. And you're right that in any sort of contest, um, everyone knows that the person person who can create or manipulate the rules of the game have the advantage because whatever the rules say um, and however you measure the win or the loss, uh, that ultimately and, and obviously impacts the outcome. And so Democrats have been doing this um, for a long time, but now that they're being so blatant and obvious about it, uh, what do you anticipate will be the next step of how they're going to try to continue to manipulate the narrative and to continue to have this uh, ridiculous talking point of voter suppression? I mean, it's not working out for them, but we're seeing that they clearly aren't winning on you know their policy stances or Joe Biden's popularity. So what do they have left? You know, that's a very good question. I mean, the, the policy, I mean, I've never seen anything fail as much as the failure to convince America that voter ID is bad. I mean, it, it's got 80 plus percent support in the country. Uh, I don't think you can get 80 percent of people in any room to agree on much, but you can get 80 percent of Americans to agree on voter ID. So it's really been a monumental failure, which has sort of been warming to the sea. You know, as to their next tactic, it, that's a good question. And I just don't know at this point. Um, you know, it's, it's, it, you know, usually they always try to extend early voting and they try to do certain things because of some unforeseen issue that pops up, you know, not all that different than what they did, you know, in 2020. But, um, I just don't know. I don't know the sort of the, I guess the flavor it'll take in 2022, mm -hmm. but I mean, you can, I mean, you can rest assured there'll be, you know, litigation file like there always is, and it'll be, you know, everyone will run into court with their hair on fire and they'll act like they got to have you know, this relief that um, they would never get except for the time pressures. 
And um, it just sort of depends on how it goes. I mean, you know, we've had some pretty good success on some of the things we do. Um, you know, we're trying to um, trying to figure out where we can make a difference and, and, you know, sort of sort of curtail it a little bit. You know, there's some things that unfortunately, if the legislator passes it and the governor signs it, there's not a lot of things you can do because, I mean, that's why we have a decentralized sis- system, right? Because right. if there is a problem in one state, it's firewalled off, right? You know, and so the problems in California don't seep into everything else and the cat problems in Georgia don't seep into everything else. And so, um, you know, we'll just, see, you know, we'll just have to see what they come up with. Yeah. And kind of, you know, take it one step at a time because they're not necessarily uh, showing or, or tipping their hand on their next playbook. And maybe they don't even know yet. Wouldn't that be great? <laughs> you know, to see that they're kind of scrambling perhaps because they didn't think that this was going to be such an epic failure. Um, but as far as Judicial Watch is concerned, I mean, I know you're you're a C3 and, you know, that's uh, nonpartisan. But looking at, um, at where the litigation was ahead of the 2020 election, do you think that um, conservative groups and even, you know, some of the partisan ones like the GOP, the RNC did get involved. Um, and in my opinion, of course, everyone knows that my opinion was the GOP utterly failed to do as much litigation as they should have um, in the COVID pretext ahead of the 2020 election. But do you think that um, groups that are concerned about the safety and integrity of our legitimate election results um, have learned any lessons from 2020 as far as pre-litigation and some of these things that we need to get ahead of prior to uh, the actual election and not just try to do kind of the accident reconstruction after the fact um, in in terms of litigation? Yeah, I mean, I think people have. I mean, I think they have learned something. I mean, have they learned enough? I mean, I guess honestly, time will tell. I mean, um, you know, from the election integrity standpoint, you're always in a different posture, right? Because mm-hmm. uh, a lot of times, you know, the uh, the liberal leaning groups will bring the affirmative case, the lawsuit, and then, you know, we'll try to get in there or a conservative group will try and get in there to, to either, you know, per, to defend the state law. Because usually it's the liberal groups are trying to suspend certain laws to, to uh, so they can do whatever they want to do. And so uh, it's always in a weird posture. Um, I think, yeah, you know, the big problem, of course, has just been um, courts. I think people until 2020 underestimated the willingness of courts to avoid making difficult issues because courts just hate election cases. They, I mean, <laughs> I always joke, there's nothing sort of uh, uh, sadder than watching a, a guy with an article, a guy or a woman with an Article Three appointment desperately trying to get out of having to make a difficult decision on an election case because they've got all these all these perks of being a federal judge. And then when you're there and there's no way out for them to avoid it, usually uh, they get sort of desperate. Yeah. And and that you raise a really great point um, that I've been ranting on for, you know, the last year uh, when we saw the federal judiciary um, just basically, you know, want to want to just say, hey, we don't want to get involved at all because it's political. And obviously, you know, they they do avoid as much as they can as some of the more politically contentious. But that's the entire reason the judicial branch is supposed to be non-political is because they know that things coming from the two political branches are going to be contentious. And that's just, I mean, elections have winners and losers. That's going to be contentious. And so they need to step in and say, you know, this is not about one candidate over another. It's not about partisan politicking. This is about making sure that everything is fair. I mean, they've gotten involved in gerrymandering cases, for example. I mean, just things that they absolutely have to decide and to arbitrate to make sure that elections are secure and fair for everyone. And so, you know, what is your take on why a lot of these um, so-called conservative Article three judges 
aren't willing to get involved and say, you know what, it sucks, but this is part of my job is to be the umpire. I mean, it would be no different than an umpire at the Super Bowl who's willing to put on the uniform, like a judge on the bench, willing to put on a robe and saying, you know what, I'm going to make half the country, you know, if it's, um, you know, Patriots versus Cowboys, whatever, you know, clearly I don't know football that well. Um, But, you know, it's like one of the two teams, I'm going to make their fans mad and the other half of the country happy based on this call. But that's not the point. The point is you call it fairly and you make the call you know i that's a good question i mean i think um a lot of times judges have a good bit of control over what they're doing right and in most cases settle i don't know what the statistics are 95 percent of the cases settle yeah. but when you have uh like i said you've got the the rnc or the dnc or some you know campaign coming in or somebody and you know they've got they, you know, they've lit their hair on fire and they're screaming about they got to get this done and um they just get, they just are afraid to make a decision. And I get it. It's tough. But, but I mean, if you get the robe, you got to make the, you got to make the call. I mean, I, yeah. I, you know, it, you're welcome to not be a judge, but um, you know, their cases, they just, they just, you know, they just have to do it. And I think that's sort of the one thing that st- stood out. So I think, you know, I think people are seeing, uh, I think, you know, the lessons we've learned in the last you know time period, 18 months or whatever, I think, I think people have figured it out a little bit better. I think, you know, there's just this inherent difficulty with sort of like when we bring a, 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 a list maintenance case to try to clean up the voter registration list, like we're bringing that case, we're the plaintiff, we get to pick the pick where we're going, we get to pick the fight, we get to pick the place that has the best facts. And and so, and there's no time crunch, right? We Because you can't do list, the federal law is such that you can't start cleaning up the voter registration list right before an election. Mm-hmm. And even if you do, there's a four, you know, there's a cycle that gets people removed. Um, Which makes so, sense. I mean, because that may be used and manipulated for actual voter suppression. So, you know, things like that make sense. Yeah. And, you know, the, the list maintenance stuff is, I mean, I don't know, you know, you know, with list maintenance is you move from active voter to inactive voter. And there's basically four years or two federal election cycles before you're actually removed. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, it's not like it happens overnight, even when we get relief, it's still follow federal law mm-hmm. and have these people, you know, start the process for removing these people four years from now. But, um, you know, those are time sensitive cases, right? I mean, obviously we want relief as soon as possible, but we're never showing up, you know, in June asking the judge to give us relief before the Febu- the November 2022 election. So, um, And I think that's an important point for people as well, because a lot of Americans tend to, I mean, you know, we're a very consumer driven culture with instant gratification. And a lot of times uh, people just frankly don't understand that the process does take time and that even trying to uh, utilize the lessons of 2020 and even, you know, well prior to that and having these ongoing battles, election integrity is going to be a longstanding process. And it's not just as quick as saying, okay, we're going to pass some overnight reforms and that's actually an intentional uh, process element of our judicial branch and also even of you know, of the legislature. It's a good thing we can't just quickly do things. There are limits on executive orders. The president can't just, with the phone and the pen, legislate, um, you know, or even sometimes if he tries to, you know. So these things are built in to make sure that one side can't manipulate. And a lot of what I get from listeners that is understandable, but I think um, what you're helping uh, kind of elucidate here is that this is an ongoing battle that's not as simple as just, oh, election integrity is going to change overnight. I mean, that's that's exactly right. I mean, 
you know, there's a federal statute, the Motor Voter Bill, also known as the NVRA, NVRA. And, um, you know, if I'd written something and, and could get enough senators to agree with me, it'd probably be different. But it is what we've got. And we just have, you know, our thing is just to follow the law. And even if we don't like it, they just got to follow it. And, um, you know, there's a process. We don't want people because there's all sorts of reasons why people don't vote. But I mean, um, and so they shouldn't be removed unilater unilaterally on day one. Uh, and they're not. And they never are. And so, you know, when people say they're doing this massive purge, that's never the case. Um, it's not as interesting to sort of explain the tedious nature of voter removal. Uh, but, you know, it just doesn't happen the way it's reported a lot of times. And, uh, you know, what's been great in the last year or so is, is, is seeing the different groups that are doing election integrity stuff, and they all have their little niches, right? I mean, like, mm -hmm. there's certain groups that, you know, we have people we work with that are doing list maintenance in different states, and then people are, you know, have ideas about how they should do it in their state. And um, it's sort of, it's great, because it's generating all this discussions, and uh, some ideas are good, and some ideas could be better, and, uh, uh, but it's all happening, and that's, honestly, that's sort of the organic way that law is made in America, right? Somebody comes up with a new concept and they test it out and they try it out and their state legislator may or may not adopt it. And, and then it goes from there. And so um, it's been interesting to see how it worked out. And um, I think, you know, elections will be better going forward. Uh, doesn't mean they're going to be clean, right? I mean, because uh, unfortunately, elections have always been health. Well, in the time period I've been watching, they're all helter skelter, right? I mean, you know, you don't see election problems when there's a landslide. Right. right. You know, that, you know, that's the prayer of an election administrator is always a landslide. <laughs> yeah, so, it's, just, it's so clear one way or another. But that's the other interesting point that Democrats, of course, in the aftermath of 2020 are seeking to almost criminalize uh, challenging election results. And, you know, I'm thinking like, well, wait a second. Um, this is not the first time that any candidate has contested the outcome, especially when the margins are so small in a lot of significant counties and states. And so, you know, moving forward, um, I think it's important for the American people and especially, uh, you know, those on the left who maybe are, um, you know, moderate Democrats or at least reasonable Democrats in the sense that, okay, they disagree with Republicans on issues like pro-life and, you know, some other things, but they would at least agree with us that elections need to be free and fair. They need to understand that contesting elections is part of the process and to make sure that we get to an accurate finding of the result and that this isn't something that's just, you know, brand new in, um, in American history or, you know, that this has never happened before and to preserve the ability of candidates to have standing and that you don't have judges that are just going to ignore that. And, you know, when you were talking about how judges settle, um, you know, upwards of 95% of their cases, it reminded me when I was clerking for a judge, uh, when I was in law school, um, he would tell civil litigants who came forward with their disputes and tell them, you know, listen, you don't want me to decide if you guys can work out an agreement that is acceptable to both parties, then that will probably be better because I don't know what's most important to you. I don't, I'm just going to rule based on the law and based on, um, you know, what discretion I have, but you probably don't want that. And so even in that type of posture, a lot of judges don't want to insert themselves. And so where they are kind of forced to, um, sometimes that does become problematic, but um, you know, when they don't, uh, but in terms of, of, of just moving forward, 
Um, is there, from Judicial Watch or any of those, uh, these other organizations, Russ, is there a pushback on at least the ability to preserve a challenge? Because I think so many people were frustrated that a lot of these cases weren't heard and were kicked out for lack of standing. Yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, you know, we've talked about it internally. You know, some of the things um, when you want to bring a, I mean, election cases, as you know, uh, uh, are difficult. And they're, um, you know, a, a properly done case uh, takes time. It takes a lot of time and a lot of facts. And uh, to do it um, post-election is a Herculean task. Um, yes. and, uh, and so I think with some of the election integrity stuff, it's important to try to bring the cases before election and just you'll deal, you know, and, you know, as long as you don't box the court in on timeline for relief, like don't show up October 15th to try to strike down a statute that had been around for 150 years in time for the November election, right? It just, you can wait till the next election. It's been, in, you know, right. and I think people are doing a better job for that. I mean, the Supreme Court... Um, you know, didn't do as much as I'd like, but uh, did, you know, dismiss a couple of bad rulings. Uh, and Claire, you know, and, and there was actually a good dissent out of Texas by Judge Oldham uh, a few months ago talking about candidate standing and how um, how sort of ridiculous the recent opinions have been about candidate standing and, and talked about how, I mean, um, you know, I probably read every voting rights case and every election case for the last 125 years. I mean, I, 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 there's probably very few that I've missed. Uh, and I've never seen a candidate not have standing. And if that's the case, then most of the Voting Rights Act precedent isn't applicable. And so um, I think uh, uh, there's been a pushback. I know I've um, spoken about it. And uh, Judge Odom, Oldham in, um, in the Fifth Circuit recently issued a dissent, like I mentioned. He sees it, and uh, I'm hoping uh, going forward that will be the end of that. And um, mm -hmm. I think, you know, I just, you know, sometimes seeking pre-election relief is just a very difficult task because mm -hmm. election cases are complicated. Judges, you know, on top of desperately trying, as a, <laughs> because they're desperately trying to avoid them, they never see them. So, mm -hmm. um, and so they, it takes a lot to get them up to speed. And, um, yeah, well, Judicial Watch is doing a great job in uh, furthering the national conversation because often, you know, while the court of public opinion isn't um, ultimately uh, outcome determinative and it's certainly not binding, it can be persuasive at least to get into uh, the... The awareness of a lot of these judges that this is something that is going to be really important, and looking at some of these decisions where they're disagreeing with how uh, courts have handled this, um, particularly on the issue of standing. And I think you know your organization is doing such a great job on these issues, and you also raise a really important point that um, you know a lot of this um, pre-election litigation is important to the extent that it's possible. But, um, you know, a lot, of, a lot of those cases have also um, been mooted out to say that the issue is not yet ripe. Like there hasn't been, you know, for example, and, you know, the easiest way to explain this to listeners is, um, you know, you can't sue someone to, for a harm that hasn't yet been incurred in most instances. So I can't sue someone for a car accident that may or may not happen tomorrow. You have to wait until that harm is actually realized and then go in um, and sue for damages. Um, and that's why it's called damages. Um, but in a post-election 
uh, time frame, and that's what we saw in the aftermath of the 2020 election, there was just so much and so little time that it's also really difficult and very easy to run out the clock. So how do you, as an election lawyer, balance those two difficulties that there is such a short clock, but also you have some of those ripeness issues as well in the pre-litigation? Well, uh, to touch on your whole standing point, um, I'll say, you know, the way I explain it to people is you just can't sue because something ain't right, right? You know, you have to, you know, I mean, we all see things we don't like and you just can't go sue over it. You got to have standing. Um, You know, I mean, I'm fortunate enough because I don't really represent campaigns or a party. And so we have, you know, we have our clients that have standing and uh, we bring our cases. And a lot of times it's not... um, it's not, it doesn't have the deadlines that a campaign would have. I mean, mm-hmm. people know that, um, you know, if you just run out the clock, you're great, you know, depending on what side of the equation you're on. Um, you know, we try to- Also like football. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You also don't want them changing the rules in the fourth quarter. Right. Um, but, you know, we try to keep an eye on mootness, right? This idea that once the election's over with, your claims are over with. And so we, you know, we try to keep track of that. And then, you know, we try to press for relief as early as possible. But if the choice is no day in court or no relief, uh, I'm just going to I'm going to wait it out. I mean, because at the end of the day, election integrity takes patience. It does. And, you know, you're not going to go in and sue and get a clean voter registration list day one. And, um, you know, it's tough to be patient sometimes. I'm certainly not the most patient person, but. Um, you know, when we bring our cases, we think about it in that, like our list maintenance cases. I mean, you know, we filed our case against um, a couple of states and, and then they drug it out so long. The new data has come out and actually helped us out. So, you know, I mean, it's like they can drag it out, but it actually helps us out sometimes. And um, and so you just got to um, see what facts you got and where you can go with it and go that direction. But I think that's a really key point for Americans that, you know, we don't like to hear, but is absolutely true that election integrity takes patience. And there were so many people so frustrated in what we saw uh, in the 2020 election on, you know, all sides of things um, that they lack that patience. They want to see something happen right away. Uh, But that I think is, is a very, very key and important point that it does take patience, but there are great organizations like Judicial Watch that are working on these issues. And you have been working on these issues, you know, not just trying to get up to speed, you know, just because of uh, what we learned in the 2020 election. So um, how can people in the last few minutes I have with you, Russ, and thank you so much for your insights and expertise on this. How can people support Judicial Watch? Um, I'm really glad to see Tom Fitton back on Twitter, uh, you know, and some of those. So I follow him, um, you know, all the great work that you do, um, not just in election integrity, but all across the spectrum. Um, Judicial Watch is such a great organization. Uh, How can people support the effort and the work that you're doing? Well, I mean, really just if they just follow us online, you know, Tom has a feed. Uh, I don't know what his feed is on Twitter, but we have obviously our Twitter feed or, and I think we're on Getter and, um, and all the other social media platforms and just follow us. And, you know, we put out a lot of stuff right now and some things are going to really interest you and some things may not. And, um, you know, just thank everyone for their support. I mean, yeah. you know, we, we have a lot of support as it is. And, uh, you know, we've, Tom and, and, and Paul and Chris at, uh, at Judicial Watch, they've all sort of built up a, what I think is a respectable cadre of election lawyers. We've got three of us that used to do litigation for the DOJ for the voting section there. And, uh, um, we didn't really like some of the things we saw. And so we've all gone in-house at Judicial Watch and it gives us an opportunity to do it. And so 
you know, just follow us on social media and amplify us and let us know what you like and we'll keep yeah. pushing along. Which is great. And I love that, you know, you don't support any particular candidate or partisan issue because that is also, I think, the most important point of election integrity is that it is all about maintaining our rule of law and the enforcement of legitimate rules. And that shouldn't be a partisan issue. Unfortunately, it's become that. And we've seen that, especially in the Democrats rhetoric um, and the leftists. But we should all at the end of the day recognize that as Americans, we all respect and appreciate everyone's right to vote and the right to disagree and the right to support uh, different candidates and different ideas. That's the hallmark of a constitutional republic and a foundation and a basis that we have free and fair elections in this country. And we, the people, get to select and prefer who who are our elected officials and who get for a limited time uh, the powers that come with that office and that though the rules surrounding that should not be tipped one way or the other they need to be nonpartisan they need to be fundamentally fair and so for organizations like judicial watch that are really doing a lot of the heavy lifting on that um, that's a very very important thing and all americans regardless of what candidate or party or policy you should you support should get behind that effort So thanks so much, Russ, for joining me. And I really appreciate your insights and hope to talk to you soon. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much for having me and um, look forward to seeing you soon. Thanks. All right. Well, 2022 is going to be a critical year for America. AMAC, the Association of Mature American Citizens, along with their nearly 2 million members. The fight to stop out-of-control spending in the president's Build Back Better scheme is far from over, and Congress is plotting more legislation that could hurt our seniors. The midterm elections will be a battle for freedom versus socialism. Unlike liberal groups, AMAC is America's conservative, action-oriented 50-plus organization fighting hard every day here in Washington and across the nation for our seniors. So I'm urging you to choose AMAC now. You will receive all of the great membership benefits, including AMAC discounts on hotels, travels, and restaurants, and your membership will support your conservative values. So go to amac.us forward slash Ellis. That's amac.us forward slash E-L-L-I-S to become an AMAC member now. Well, Russ and all of my good friends at Judicial Watch are doing such, such important work. And so is the Election Integrity Alliance that's part of the American Greatness Fund. And of course, in full disclosure, I am the chairwoman of the Election Integrity Alliance. You can go to americangreatnessfund.com and you can sign up for all of our news releases. You can support us there. And this is, as Russ said, uh, really a, an issue of patience. And so I would just um, encourage everyone who's listening to this to understand that this is a complex issue. We have so many great partners uh, in Washington, D.C. and throughout the country um, on all of the state level issues that are looking at these things, that are litigating, that are trying to uh, educate state legislatures. Um, I think that education portion was hugely significant in the 2020 election. And uh, actually with the state legislatures recognizing their constitutional power and responsibility and duty to make sure that they are the last safeguard of election integrity and making sure that every legal vote counts and counts fairly. And so um, please support Judicial Watch, um, support the Election Integrity Alliance, um, and make sure that we can continue to keep doing that great work. I'm so thankful for my board at the Election Integrity Alliance, all of our partners, um, including at the Conservative Partnership Institute. And just so you know, I mean, we have a group 
um, out of DC, but also, you know, that of course are in all of the states of election integrity partners that we talk weekly about these issues. And um, even though it may not be as immediate as you want or as um, as amplified in the media um, as you prefer, that's why um, my podcast is a great forum to get to talk about these issues and, you know, choose the topics that are really important to you. Continue to ask those questions, but continue to tune in because, um, you know, some of these things just aren't being amplified in media. So it seems like um, maybe that the Democrats are just kind of getting away with their preferred narrative and conservatives aren't pushing back. But obviously that is just so fundamentally false and people need to be aware of what Judicial Watch and other groups are doing. So definitely follow Judicial Watch, follow Tom Fitton. Um, He's going to be my guest uh, soon on the program as well. And um, I'll get to talk to him about, you know, a lot of stuff that Judicial Watch has been doing, including uh, FOIA requests, you know, Freedom of Information Act. They do a lot of things um, to make sure that American government agents um, and laws are held accountable and to make sure to enforce the law. Um, They do such, such great work. So I'm always happy uh, when I get to talk to my good friend Tom Fitton and you know Russ is also so great so before I go I also want to talk about another great American who is the sponsor of this podcast and that of course is my good friend Mike Lindell he has been canceled out of so many box stores for simply standing up for his own political opinion and disagree or not uh, or support him or not It is a fundamental right of every American to be able to voice their opinion, and that absolutely includes politics. That absolutely includes uh, issues that are central to our culture. That includes faith. Uh, Mike is such a very sincere Christian, and I am proud to consider him a friend, and he is, of course, a friend of this show. So right now, there is a special on MyPillow.com. Click on the new radio listener specials. Get deep discounts on all MyPillow products, including a great towel set, which is a six-piece set, It includes two bath, two hand towels, two washcloths, made in the USA, regularly $109.99, now just $39.99. But you have to use the promo code Jenna. That's J-E-N-N-A. That tells Mike that you listen to this show. You're happy that he is uh, a sponsor of this show and you will get great, great discounts. But use the promo code Jenna. That's J-E-N-N-A either at MyPillow.com or call one 800 564 8475 and use the promo code Jenna. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com. <laughs> 